We are back with another exciting episode of TSBOF, the podcast. Uh, this is Evan, the third host, giving you your announcement of the new episode. So, as always, and with every episode of True Stories Based on Fiction, we can uh, contain some coarse language. Uh, listener discretion is advised. This week, we continue our summer interview sessions that have been going exceedingly well. Um, last week, we were joined by Frank Quitely. This time we're joined by comics writer and legend. I know I said they're legend, but we we could have called this the summer interview sessions with legends. That but that doesn't roll off tongue as well. But anyway, we're joined by comics writer and legend and the editor in chief, chief uh, Ron Mars. Ron Mars is best known for the creation of Kyle Reiner, one of the most popular Green Lanterns. As Brian and I say during the interview, our Green Lantern. But he's written for every publisher imaginable. Imagine um, Marvel, DC. He was a writer of the bulk of the Marvel vs. DC storyline from the uh, mid '90s, which he will explain the the genesis of. We talk about Kyle Reiner. We talk about um, him being the head writer and the editor in chief of his new uh, publishing house, Ominous Press, founded by Bart Sears, another comic legend. We talk about. Um, his, his uh, adventures at the latest uh, San Diego Comic Con and what the con culture is like. We discuss his upcoming Kickstarter with friend of the show, Daryl Banks, called Harkins Luck Raiders. And that will be coming out, meaning the Kickstarter will launch as I record this in the episode release in about two weeks. So be on Kickstarter.com. Search for Ron Mars, Daryl Banks, or Harkins and Raiders, and you should be able to find it. Make sure you donate to that so we can get a Daryl Banks workout here again with one of his best uh, collaborators, Ron Mars. And also, we, talk, we do a pretty deep dive on uh, Kyle Reiner, Green Lantern. We get his side of the whole woman in refrigerators trope that we spoke about with uh, his friend uh, Daryl Banks. So this is kind of the sister episode or brother episode to to our Daryl Banks interview on episode 50. So if you're just new to the show, go back and listen to every episode, but especially episode 50. Um, we also talk about his work with Cross Gen Comics, which was an early 2000s uh, comic book line where they uh, mirrored the old Marvel bullpen, uh, meaning that uh, everyone worked in the same building. And he, he, he tells me how, tells us how it helped him grow as a writer and it taught him how to be an editor. So it's a very exciting, uh, well thought out, informative interview. Probably our best yet. We're definitely getting the hang of this whole interview thing. We have a few more interviews uh, happening in our summer interview session, so don't you worry. There's more to come. And we have a couple of new shows coming to the network, which I will explain later. To that point, I just call this a network now, so I'll talk about that in a later intro as well. But until a, until that time, enjoy the following Good episode. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We are tonight's entertainment. Thank you. 
you just got back from San Diego Comic Con a few weeks ago. What was that experience like? Um, it's you know, it's not an experience. It's an ordeal. <laughs> uh, that's it's um, you know, it's for somebody on my side of the table, it ends up being work because you're there to you know, um, you're there to promote and to have meetings and to. You know, to, it, there's there's always some place you got to be. There's always um, a schedule that you've got to adhere to. So it's not really, um, you know, you, you don't get the you don't get the experience that the fans get because the fans get to go do what they want when they want and see all sorts of cool stuff. For us, it's more of a, um, uh, you know, it's more of a work obligation, and it's and it's obviously there. You know, there's social stuff that goes on as well. Right. Um, for me this year, Aspen, uh, Aspen brought me out. And so I was at their booth, um, uh, for signings every day and, um, mm -hmm. they treated me wonderfully. Um, so, so that aspect was, was terrific. It's just, you know, it's the, it's the typical thing with San Diego and even New York is like this is the shows are just so big and so crowded <laughs> that there's not an easy way to do anything. You don't, you know, you don't get across the hall easy you don't get back and forth from your hotel to the convention hall easily it's just you know it's just really big um so so i, I guess that sounds like a lot of complaining but it's still you know, a, um hey it works work. it's still I a mean, really cool it's it's still a really cool experience that just it, it it just knocks a big chunk out of your of your work schedule because you gotta you know for, right. for everybody for the you know for the publishers for the writers for the artists you've you've got to you know, you've got to got to be there, got to do what you're supposed to do, and then you're still supposed to, you know, get your work done. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, how many years have you been doing San Diego now? I think my first year in San Diego was 92. Wow. I'm not completely sure, but it was either 92 or 93. Um, so, and I've been most years, I, you know, uh, I think I, I missed a year the, for the for the birth of my first son um <laughs> and once in a while um things conspire and I and I haven't gone but I've probably been um I've probably been to it you know 23 24 25 times or something like that um since then so um it's 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 been interesting to watch how what was once a comic book convention in a normal size convention hall turn into this turn into this monster i mean the first right. the first year that i was there there were you know there were a few hotels and it was a you know fairly traditional comic convention environment that i, I don't i'm not even sure if it filled the entire hall <laughs> um, you know now the now the hall now the convention center itself is is you know uh, has grown three times in size um, the, the entire gas lamp district where the where the convention hall is and all the hotels I mean none of that was there when I started going there really uh, the baseball stadium wasn't there so this I've watched the whole area down there um, you know it's kind of you, you go there once a year so it's almost like you see it in time lapse um, <laughs> but I've watched that whole area you know gentrify and regentrify and regentrify <laughs> at this point so um you know, it, it used to be that you know there's a there's a set of railroad tracks across from the convention center, mm -hmm. um, and it used to be that the 
the other side of the tracks was really the other side of the tracks. You didn't <laughs> you didn't really go much past the tracks because that whole area, which is now the the gas lamp district, which is where you know all the boutiques and restaurants and hotels and everything else is, um, that was you know that was basically like liquor stores and tattoo parlors and porn shops because um, you know because San Diego's a navy town. Right. Uh, so, um, so you didn't stray too far from where you were supposed to be years ago. And, and now obviously, um, you know, the, the thing has grown to uh, encompass, you know, eight or 10 blocks in every direction beyond the convention center. So it's, um, I, I've had a ringside seat. <laughs> so when do you think it changed from being just like a comic show to like a, a, a multimedia show that has a little bit of comic talk? Um, I think the early 2000s, um, right. 04, maybe 03, 04, something like that. I can't pinpoint an exact date, but mm-hmm. th- that ballpark is when, is when L.A. discovered that they had a really willing audience two hours down the road. Right. Um, <laughs> that's when all the studios discovered, oh, we can go market to these people. So it, it obviously... It obviously dovetailed with comic book movies really being a thing, um, being something that not just comic book fans knew about, but it's a it's you know it's for the general public now. So that's when it really that's when it really exploded. Right. Um, that's when it just became this massive, you know, pop culture thing rather than a comic book show. Right. And I don't I don't at all. Um, I, I miss the days when it was just a comic book show, but um, I don't begrudge what it's turned into because it's, you know, it's it's known worldwide. It's a huge, um, it's a huge cultural phenomenon uh, once a year, and I think it it does a lot of good for spreading the word about the kind of stuff that that we love. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you can't just keep you can't just keep your fandom to yourself. You can't just have your, you know, your little niche audience if you want it to grow. Um, and I think that's really what, um, what San Diego has done is has, has grown the audience and the acceptance of all this stuff, um, by bringing in, you know, film, television, uh, video games, toys, everything else that's there. And it, and it brings in a lot of people who frankly have probably never read a comic in their lives, but, that doesn't mean they shouldn't be there or that we shouldn't celebrate it. Um, it's, it's, um, you know, it's, we need comics to have a big tent and we need to have as many different people. Um, we need to have as many different people reading comics as possible. And if some of those people who have never read a comic that show up at San Diego, you know, maybe get a free comic stuffed into their bag at some point and decide, Oh, these are pretty cool. Maybe I should check this out. That's all to the good. Absolutely, and you probably still get your fair share of like the smaller cons that you get to get to that might be more comic fo- focused than. Uh, oh yeah, I mean certainly the the convention, um, you know the convention experience has sort of striated so that it's there are different kinds of cons for different kinds of fandoms. Um, right. There right. are cons where you want to go get, you know, if you want to go get an autograph from Chris Evans, you can go do that. Um, if you want to just go to a comic book convention, there are those as well. There, you know, there are a little fewer and farther between, 
and you have to seek them out a little bit. But there are certainly so- shows like, um, you know, like Baltimore, for instance, mm-hmm. that are mm-hmm. are pretty much comic book shows. And if if you're not into comics, there's really not a lot that is going to excite you in the building. Um, it's it's just um, it's just I think it's kind of reflects the way that um, all media has kind of um, has has kind of splintered. So that everything's a niche, mm-hmm. you know. If you want to, if you want to go to a, you know, a quote-unquote comic convention that's mostly wrestlers, you can go do that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you want to go to a comic convention that's mostly comics, you can go do that. Or mostly, you know, actors from TV and movies. You know, it's it's you can find the sort of show that you want somewhere. Um, and it's like I said, it's it's just like everything else that that we consume as as media now. Um, it's it's not one size fits all. It's a it's a pretty diverse menu now, and um, you can't expect that menu to just have things that you want on it. It's got things that everybody wants. Your job is to go through and pick out what you want. Right, and then um, go I'll go back to San Diego. So you said you were there to um promote your work at Aspen, but you're actually writing a lot of books right now from what I have, uh, um, in doing my research for this interview, I saw that, um, uh, could you run down for the people, um, all the books you're writing right now? Um, I, I'm never good at this question because I always forget something. Because <laughs> there's um, a lot. <laughs> which is, which is kind of the nature of, of being a writer in this business is you always, you know, you're always juggling three or four or five different projects because that's just the nature of of being a writer is you know an artist can work on one book a month basically as right. a writer you can do three or five um so i'm doing fathom for aspen um yeah. with uh sia um drawing it and uh peter steigerwald coloring and i couldn't be happier um, those guys are those, those guys are awesome and i'm totally riding their coattails um <laughs> I'm doing, uh, let me see, I'm doing uh, Dread Gods for Ominous, which publishes through IDW. I'm doing Demigod for Ominous, which publishes through IDW. Um, We just released uh, Beasts of the Black Hand, which is an original graphic novel through Ominous Press. Um, We're doing work on the sequel for that. We're working on a couple of different ominous press projects that will be in that same oversized hardcover format mm. um including one that uh it's called harkens raiders right. which the kickstarter for that will probably be within the next two weeks or so um that that's uh by myself and daryl banks who yes. was my artist on green lantern for many a year so we're teaming back up on a world war ii adventure with uh color by d cuniff um and the, the whole sort of storyline and creative team was brought together by my my buddy Alan Cordry. Um, it's uh, you know that that project in particular is just a joy because I get to I get to work with Daryl again and we get to do right. something a little different than we've done before. We you know we get to tell a you know an adventure story set in World War Two. Um, you know it's not a it's not um, it's not a uh, a heavy you know sort of war is bad sort of story if mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying right yeah um obviously obviously all war is bad and it's it's a horrible thing um but the kind of story we're telling um uh harkens back no pun intended to to things like um 
the Dirty Dozen and Kelly's Heroes and those sort of, you know, World War II adventure movies that um, that aren't quite so prevalent anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it's yeah, it's 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 a war story. It's um, it, the subject is obviously taken very seriously, but there's an adventure aspect to it as well. Beautiful, yeah. Because um, we spoke of Daryl. Uh, what was that, Brian? Like last October or so? Yeah, right around our fiftieth episode. Yeah, and I, and we're surmising that this is a pro- the top secret project that he was uh, kind of hinting at that he couldn't tell us about. So, is that how far back this project goes? Um, yeah, we were starting to work on it back then, but there's actually a different top secret project that Daryl and I are also oh. working on. Um that I think is still fairly top secret. I can't tell you what it is. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, but uh, we're definitely excited to see you and Derek getting back at it again, because um, is, is it correct that last time you guys worked together was on the DC Retroactive? Um, yeah, I think that's the... I, I think that's the... Um, I think that's the last time we did... Um, we did, a, you know, we did a larger chunk of sequential pages. Uh, Daryl and I have done little things here and there. Um... We did an eight-page backup, Zeke, right? sort of, almost like a, yeah, Big Zeke, sort yeah, of. A, yeah. it's, it's like a seventies black exploitation mm-hmm. superhero thing. It was just a lot of fun. Um, you know, I I was actually looking at Big Zeke today when we were putting the putting together the the video for the Kickstarter for Harkins Raiders, and um, man, that was just that was just a fun story. And, and having <laughs> and having Jack Kirby as a, as a as a dime store Indian was. <laughs> um, if I do say so, a stroke of obvious genius. No, absolutely. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that, I think that's probably the last sequential pages that Daryl and I did together, other than the secret project that I can't tell you about. Um, so, um, actually, I think probably that big Zeke story will be in um, Daryl's art book, which will be part of the Harkins Raiders Kickstarter. Oh, um, Ominous, Ominous is doing a series of art books. Uh, Bart Sears was the first one. Andy Smith was also out, and then we have uh, Jim Starlin, uh, who's we just concluded the Kickstarter for that, um, and we're putting that book together in the next week and a half or so to go to press. Nice. So we'll have a Jim Starlin art book. There's a, a Rick Leonardi art book coming, mm. a Graham Olin art book, and then Daryl's going to get his own uh, his own black book art book um, as part of this project and. I suspect the, the the entirety of the Zeke story will be in there. So, kind of getting into a lot some of your earlier work with uh, Daryl was uh, your Green Lantern run the first time that you two, the two of you kind of collaborated together. Yeah, he was. You know, when they brought me on to Green Lantern to take over the, the writing of the book, Daryl was already assigned to the book. Um, he was um, he was going to work with the previous writer, he, you know, they, DC had decided that he was going to be the, the new artist taking over with issue 48. When DC changed his mind and decided, all right, we want a new writer and we're going to go in a different direction for the story. The stuff that Daryl had done for issue, what was going to be issue 48 got scrapped. Um, really? Those pages still exist. I've actually got copies of those pages. Really? What kind of storyline <laughs> do you have? Or can you say what kind of storyline they were, Originally going with before. well, they were they were gonna they were gonna make Hal into a different um, into a different hero. He was gonna be called the Protector. He was gonna leave the Green Lantern car and be called the Protector. Um, so those pages are still 
um, those pages are still in existence. Um, I've, got, I've got copies of them, but they'll never see the light of day because they <laughs> decided to scrap that whole idea, and, and Emerald Twilight is what came out of that. So wow. um, by that, when those decisions were made and the new team was hired, um, there wasn't time for Daryl to actually draw issues 48, 49, and 50. So Daryl skipped ahead to 50 to take over and have that be his first issue on the book. And um, and we had other artists. Uh, Bill Willingham did 48, and I believe a guy named Fred Haynes did 49. Um, And I had to to actually write all three of those issues at once (laughs) because everything was late at that point. So I, I had to write a chunk of 48, a chunk of 49, a chunk of 50, and then go back and finish them all off so that wow. we could have, uh, so that we could have the, um, all, all the issues being drawn at the same time to catch us back up on the schedule. Wow. Now, did they, was during the time of, um, reign of the Superman, when coast city was destroyed, did DC have an idea right then that that's what the direction they were going to, or was this where they were still thinking, you know, come issue fifty, they were going to do turn Hal into the protector. <laughs> Never heard of. I, you know, I think yeah, I think uh, I'm a little hazy on when the decision was made, other than you know when I got a phone call. Right. So I, I think maybe, uh, th- yeah, issue forty six, which was the you know Coast City gets destroyed issue that tied into Re- to Reign of the Superman. I think that was probably when they started to feel like, all right, maybe we need to do something more drastic than just you know not have Hal be Green Lantern anymore. Do you think it was kind of like a DC thing? Because that was right around the time, you know, bring in Kyle Rayner to replace uh, Hal Jordan. You had the four different Supermen. Uh, John Paul Valley was taking over for Batman. So it seemed like there was like that one year to two year time span. DC was trying to give maybe a little bit more of an edge or to their characters. Well, I know this will come as a shock to a lot of people, but comics are actually a commercial project and the publishers <laughs> like to sell them. Right. Um, Who'd have thunk it, huh? So obviously DC had had very, you know, very great sales success with the death of Superman and the Nightfall storyline where Batman got his back broken and got replaced by Azrael. Um, so this was the next one in line. Uh, you know, obviously I think without without death of Superman or um, or Nightfall, this this story probably wouldn't have taken place. Um, something else would have been done with Green Lantern because the book wasn't selling and an editorial wanted to um, wanted to try to salvage it. But um, you know, obviously, comics are like anything else. If you know, if something works, if something is successful, you're going to get more of it. Right. And right. certainly. Um, Emerald Twilight followed in the footsteps of those two storylines, um, and and frankly sold sold quite well as well. So yes. um, it's um, you know these are this is mythology that we're telling. These are sto- these are stories that um, you know stand on the shoulders of stories that came before and all that. But it's you know it's ultimately a um, uh, comics are kind of the, a shotgun marriage of, of <laughs> commerce and art. Um, so the creators might be more on the art side of things, but certainly the publishers and the editors are paying attention to the bottom line. So, um, you know, those sorts of stories were in vogue and were were being embraced by the audience. So uh, DC decided to do more of it. 
Was there ever any talk like the Kyle Rayner storyline might have been shorter as a f- way of bringing Hal Jordan back, and then it just people kind of responded better to Kyle Rayner? Yeah, I've, I've been asked this a number of times, and um, my answer is always the same. You know, like as far as I know, there was no back door. There was no, oh, you know what, we'll, we'll let this go for half dozen issues, and then we'll bring Hal back. There was no back door built into my story in any way. There was no thought of of switching back at any point, um, at least that I was told. If there was, you know, if there was, there were thoughts in editorial that, well, you know, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll keep an escape hatch here if this doesn't work out like we wanted to. That certainly never, um, um, that certainly never was passed down to me. So as as far as I was concerned. You know, we created a new Green Lantern, and we were just going to run with it. Um, speaking of editorial, when we spoke to Daryl, he said that it came of kind of a shock to him um, during what was that storyline, Brian? When it made Hal Jordan the villain, and that wasn't something that you guys had naturally planned in your book. Can zero you give hour? us was that zero hour? Yeah, on zero hour. Could you give us your take on that? Um, yeah, I, neither Daryl nor I knew. Um, that that Parallax, Hal as Parallax, was going to be the big villain in Zero Hour. Um, you know, I think we that'd knew be that Zero Hour was coming. Out. You'd almost think, think that'd be announced. something yeah. they would tell you about that. Seeing so, you know, it would kind of be pretty integral to your storyline. I, you know, I honestly think it was just the editor forgot to tell us because <laughs> um, I remember being That's on crazy. being on a conference call where, you know, it was being discussed that. Um, that you know, oh well, when Parallax shows up in Zero Hour, and I was kind of like, "Wait, what? Oh, what now? <laughs> what are we talking about? <laughs> My Parallax?" The, the editor literally went, "Wait, I didn't tell you." <laughs> um, I'm like, "No." Um, so yeah, we we you know we found out a little later in the game. It didn't affect the story story in any way. That's uh, other than other than once our obviously we you know we we found out. We found all the details we needed to know once um, once we figured out that we were going to be doing a zero issue as well, and we had to tie in. And it all it all dovetailed very nicely, you know. And thanks in large part to to Dan Jurgens, who's a buddy anyway. And um, and you know he. Dan filled me in on the side, and we talked about what we could do in our zero issue and how it could how it could play into what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's this stuff is not terribly unusual in a shared universe right, um, right. with with this many characters and this many storylines always being juggled. Um, the coordination of it is a pretty is a pretty mighty task, and once in a while something slips through the cracks, but you you know you you fix it whenever you can. Yeah, but that's a pretty big crack. But yeah, but like as you said, though, you guys made it work uh, with your story. Um, so kind of bridging off that a little bit. Um, so that's not really censorship, but has there ever been a time to where you felt as though you've been censored for any of the publishers, the myriad of publishers that you work for? Well, you know, censorship is a is a um, censorship isn't quite the right word for what we do. Um, Censorship is when the government comes in and says you can't publish that. Um, True. What we do is, you know, is, you know, make up stories about 
um, people who wear their underwear on the outside of their clothes. Um, <laughs> so it's not really it's not really a, a case of censorship, but whenever you know whenever you're working on characters that somebody else owns, um, there's always a uh, there's always a push pull in terms of who wants to do what and where you want to take the storyline. Ultimately, DC Comics owns all of these characters. Right. And 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 when if if there's a if there's a disagreement, um, ultimately DC gets to decide. DC you know DC has the has the last uh, has the last say in any of this because um, because they're uh, you know they're the, the owners, owners. <laughs> right uh, right. So and that's and that's just look man that's just the way it is. Uh, yeah. That's there's there's always room for negotiation and. And kind of figuring out which, um, which you know, which of your storylines you're going to do, which which of the company storylines you're going to adhere to. Um, there, there's always a middle ground. There's always um, there's always uh, give and take on each side. Um, and that's you know, if if you don't want to have any compromises or or uh, listen to anybody else's editorial input. Go do a creator-owned book, you know. And I've done a number of creator-owned books, right. and it's great. Yeah. Uh, you just do what you, you just do what you want. But if you, you know, if you want to play with somebody else's toys, you go into it knowing that there's there's going to be a back and forth. Um, I think. You know, so some sometimes you know sometimes you get a storyline turned down, and um, you just have to accept that and move on. Um, I, I I think that. The most notable instance where you know we didn't get, or or at least we got what some people might call censored, is when um, we we killed off Alex's girlfriend, right. or we killed off Kyle's girlfriend, Alex, and uh, obviously notoriously had her body stuffed in the refrigerator. Mm-hmm. Um, the original page for that scene uh, shows her body in the refrigerator, stuffed in there upside down. Um, the the comics code which was still in existence at that point um which was a you know we were always told it was you know uh, a handful of little old ladies that read the comics <laughs> and and put their stamp of approval on it um refused refused to uh, approve it because they they found that scene just too disturbing um so they um they actually rejected it and the book came back and they said you can't show this. You have to have the door closed if you're going to do this, um, or mostly closed. So the the panel was redrawn by Daryl so that the refrigerator door was mostly closed. You could just sort of catch a glimpse of what was inside of it. Yeah, I think the hand and, and was hanging out. It's you see her hand and part of her face and her and her hair and you know. Yeah. Uh, the original page, Daryl Darryl drew, you know, all of her body, uh, clothed, um, upside, you know, sort of stuffed in the refrigerator upside down, and uh, you know, obviously a a a horrific deed by a horrific villain. Um, but when the comics code said, "Hey, we need this door shut," um, the pa- the page was redrawn with the door two thirds or three quarters shut. So suddenly, the fact that her body was in there upside down now reads like that her body's been, you know, decapitated and right. sort of placed in there like cold cuts. <laughs> so the 
you know, so the the fact that they said, oh, this is too horrible, you can't show it, um, obviously ended up making the thing that much more horrific because the reader's minds fill in um, fill in what you don't show. Uh, I think almost always what you don't show is more powerful than what you do show. Agreed. So, um, so suddenly that that imagery and the and I think the scene in general became became that much more horrific and disturbing because you, some of the context was removed. Right. Um, so, because um, you know, obviously for for me, for Daryl, for the editor it didn't really occur to us that people were going to read it that way mm -hmm. because we knew what the intent was and what the original, original art looked like. We didn't make the, you know, so, so we weren't filling in what might be in, in that scene with the door closed. We knew what was there because we had seen it, <laughs> right. but nobody else did. And everybody, everybody sort of immediately, um, uh, went to sort of, uh, you know, slasher movie, uh, stuff so right. um it was you know a notorious incident no matter what but it just i think probably got made that much more um uh that much more graphic in readers minds because of what we didn't show well you also got to create the uh term girl girl in the refrigerator wasn't it <clears throat> yeah i mean obviously that that wasn't an intention and right. uh, it's it's a Certainly, it's a, it's a valid criticism of not only that scene but the genre as a whole. Um, but you know, honest to God, I just I ripped off the bit from uh, Stephen King because oh. in his novel Firestarter, uh -huh. the government agents uh, put the mother's body in either the, the washer or the dryer in the house. Oh wow! Um, which which was a thing a thing that you know stuck with me quite a while when I read the book um, you know years before this scene ever mm -hmm. ever reared it so you know the you know the honest answer is I was just ripping off Stephen King <laughs> I don't know if it was meant as a homage to you or not but I don't know if you get a ever gotten a chance to watch the uh, show Cloak and Dagger but I think it was a couple weeks ago there was a character that was uh, killed off and stuffed into a refrigerator and I mean, when they showed that at the tail end of the episode, it was the first thing I could think of was uh, the Green Lantern issue you did when they did it, because they opened it up, and one of the police officers sees uh, her boyfriend actually stuffed into the refrigerator, killed. Oh, so. wow, I had no idea. Um, yeah, one of the one of the things when you, when you work in comics, one of the things you don't get a uh, chance to do a lot, or certainly when you write comics, one of the things you don't get a chance to do a lot is watch TV. Right, so. right. <laughs> Um, I haven't, uh, I haven't seen, uh, I haven't seen that bit at all. Uh, I wouldn't, hadn't even heard of it until now. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing I want to, uh, ask on is, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the Marvel versus, uh, DC, DC mm -hmm. versus Marvel miniseries that you were part of? Like what the story behind getting that created, the writing process for it and, uh, really coming up with the like, ideas of realistically who was winning the fights between and those well you know uh, you, you say realistically winning the fights is boy that's that wasn't the point at all uh, <laughs> you know having anything be realistic with with a with a popcorn storyline like that was like the last thing on our minds um 
it was a you know it was a an awesome offer um one of one of the most fun gigs that i've ever had obviously it's a it's the sort of gig that you you know you dream about when you're 10 years old mm -hmm. and you don't think it's ever gonna well you don't think you're gonna write comics period and you certainly don't think you're gonna get to write you know the the, the large-scale marvel dc crossover um but the you know the storyline came out of of you know hey Let's let's have these guys fight. That's really what it was about, and, what, and, yeah. the, and the story, the framework around the story was really just just there to give us a framework to have everybody fight and to have you know to have uh, the artists on the series um, be able to draw a bunch of cool meetings that you had never seen before. Right. Um, so it was you know it was in every way a dream job. I you know I wrote the. Uh, I wrote the first and third issues solo and kibitzed on um, Peter David's issues two and four. Um, and obviously, you know, Peter kibitzed on, on my issues as well. Uh, I, you know, the way it worked out is I got to, you know, I really got to do the, the issues that I really wanted to do, which was the first one, which is how does this all happen? And some of the first meetings between the characters, as well as the third issue, which was which was really all all the big fights and most of the, most of the other fights as well. Right. Um, it was uh, you know it, it it was it was a big summer tentpole popcorn kind of storyline, and I loved every minute of it. Sure. So that, did you do both the sequels, or was it just the uh, one sequel for that you did as well? Um, I did the I did the first all access sequel, which is the character that was created to yep. sort of bounce back and forth between the two universes. So I I did that, and we you know we roped in a bunch of characters that we maybe hadn't had a chance to um, show off as much in the in the original DC versus Marvel miniseries. Um, you know, and again, that was just this is this is cool and fun and you know what 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 can we what sort of story can we come up with to to hang this framework of who gets to meet who who you know robin and jubilee going out date and you know for me for for that whole the, the the biggest the biggest scene for me was batman crashing through doctor strange's skylight i mean that's <laughs> like like there's an entire issue built around making making that making that happen, make, giving it, giving me an excuse to make that happen in the book. Um, so, um, again, it was just, um, it was a sheer pleasure. Um, I think the next one was, was written by Carl Kiesel, who yeah, it uh, was. just did a ter terrific fun job on it. Um, uh, you know, obviously it was the right era for this stuff. It was, it was just, um, it was just the right time when comic sales were not great. The bottom had sort of dropped out of the market when the, the speculator boom collapsed. So, so Marvel, um, Marvel and DC really needed each other, um, and they had they had been you know essentially friendly rivals um, for decades. Uh, you know, people people who worked at both companies were friends. You know, editors went back and forth between the two companies. In terms of employment, so the, the companies were were closer both um, physically because they were both in New York at that point, and they were right. and they were closer in terms of having a 
you know, the the companies fraternized. They played softball with and against each other. There, there was, you know, huh. there was uh, a friendly rivalry. Um, so we we were sort of at the tail end of that of that era when uh, both both publishers really needed each other to, and and wanted to do a project, which turned into Marvel versus DC, to help stores stay open, to help mm. um, to help the the local comic shops uh, weather the storm of of the speculator boom that had really, um, in very short order, had had taken a lot of the wind out of the out of the market. Um, so all of those things sort of factored into how how the project came together um and you know and and not that long after um within a few years you know there was a management change in marvel Mm -hmm. um comic book movies started coming out and making a lot of money so suddenly the the properties were worth a bunch of money where they hadn't been even five years before they were just they were just comic books five years before um, once they turned into into um, multimedia, multi-platform franchises, all of a sudden there's a lot more money involved. There's a lot more money to be made, and um, you know the the companies became very jealous of what their IPs were. You know they became very jealous of their intellectual property. So those sorts of of uh, crossovers and kind of sharing each other's characters for the overall good came to a fairly, you know, fairly significant end when this stuff really started to be worth a lot of money. Um, which is kind of sad because I, you know, I got to write a number of different crossovers between Marvel and DC and, and, you know, DC and other publishers even. Um, and they were, they're all, they're all fun. They're all just, uh, just a ball to work on. So that was, that era has sort of, come to a close where um, there were a lot of crossover projects. Uh, and, you know, I, I doubt you'll see it again because, um, you know, there's they're not just comic book characters anymore, as I said. They're, they're these multimedia franchises, and right. unless there's a, there's a, there's a, unless there's a way to make a huge pile of money, you're probably not, not going to see those sorts of publishing projects again because, um, they, you know, DC wants to keep its movie properties for itself. Marvel wants to keep its movie properties for itself. Um, so um, I was in, I guess I was in the right time at the right place. Right, right. Um, so kind of sh- shifting away from the big two, a question that I told you that I want to ask you. Uh, could you explain your association with CrossGen, like where you were right when you got the offer in terms of like projects? And what that entire experience was about, because I remember reading about it in Wizard Magazine, and they were trying to re- recreate the Marvel bullpen to where you guys all worked in the same building at the same time, right? Yeah, it was. I, I think, I think, San Diego Convention of '99 is when I first heard that CrossGen was a thing, because I had a had a buddy named Ian Feller who used to work at Wizard Magazine, and he's a guy that I was friends with from Wizard. Um, I bumped into at one of the hotels in San Diego in the bar maybe or or you know walking in and out and he said hey I'm doing a new thing I want you to meet somebody so he introduced me to Mark Alessi who was the guy putting uh, mm-hmm. CrossGen together and that's kind of where the whole um, 
that's kind of where the whole thing started for me. Um, and I, I think I was actually working with um, Claudio Castellini on a couple of different projects. You know, who Claudio, who, who drew half of Marvel versus DC, who right. drew, the, drew the Marvel, the quote unquote Marvel half of Marvel versus DC. Um, Alessi was a huge fan of Castellini because they are both huge fans of John Buscema. So, you know, he really wanted me to introduce him to Castellini. So I made that, I made that, um, uh, I made that meeting take place. Um, and everything sort of grew from there. They, they flew me to, they flew me to Tampa to check out the office and what their plans were. And, and ultimately, you know, I decided that, um, you know, it was, it was enticing in that it was, it was a real job. It was, you know, right. it wasn't freelance. You were on staff. You were going to get paid every two weeks, no matter if you got or, or, you know, or if you, uh, you know, got banged up in a car accident and couldn't work for a month. Um, it was a real, it was a real job with benefits and vacation time, and health insurance and all that. And obviously that's, that's an attractive thing. And that's, that's sure. not something that freelancers generally get in the comics business. You're, you know, you're a, you're, you're a hired gun and you come in and you work on different jobs with, for different publishers. Um, but you don't have, you don't have salary, you don't have benefits, you don't have health insurance. You got to, if you, if you want those things, you got to get them somewhere else. Um, so, you know, so I took a flyer on CrossGen and, and moved down to join the studio mm. in 2000. And, um, it was, you know, it was, a, it was an interesting experience. I don't, I don't look at it as a bad experience, except for the fact that it didn't work out in the end. Right. And, um, and the, you know, the place ended up closing down, but, uh, you know, I, I, I don't look back at the, the experience of being there with any sort of regret at all. Um, there were there were positives, there were negatives, but I learned a hell of a lot about making comics because we were our own editors, we were our own, mm -hmm. you know, uh, we were our own kind of uh, production teams. Um, so I learned a hell of a lot. I got to work with some amazing artists uh, on virtually everything I worked on there. Yeah, um, I got I got to tell a bunch of stories that were not superhero stories because that's not what we did. We did everything except superheroes. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I, I generally had um, um, I generally had a, a sense of of um, you know accomplishment at the end of it, and that we that we made some you know that we made some made some decent comics while we were down there. Um, and I think. I think overall good things came out of it, and I'm still proud of a lot of those comics. Um, um, so, uh, you know, it was it was interesting. It was fascinating. Um, um, there's yeah, there's stories that I can't really tell that came out of it. There's <laughs> stories that I can tell, um, but um, yeah, it was a pretty you know it was a pretty fascinating experience overall. Um, and and the, the the aspect of creating the books, the aspect of being in the same studio with the rest of your right, right. Uh, with the rest of your creative team was awesome. You know, if you you know you could all sit down at at, uh, at a table and say, you know, what do you want to draw? What do you not want to draw? The the artist and the colorist could put their heads together about how they wanted a page to look. Um, 
we were really very much the, the captains of our own ships in terms of running those books. There were no editors. Um, we just, the, the writers really kind of, kind of took on the editorial role and, and that aspect I really, I really liked. I liked being, I liked being in the building with, um, with the guys I was working with guys and guys and women, obviously we had, right. uh, uh, we had some, terrific women working on staff as well um so it was a um so it was a uh a learning experience that uh that was not bad it just didn't end well yeah unfortunately because for a while uh you guys definitely put a a very good impression on, on on the industry and i think it changed it for the better and everyone who worked there leveled up from the time that they were there prior to after I mean, you can go down the list. I can't think of anyone whose style of writing or, or drawing or coloring didn't evolve off of their times. They're like, like say for example, Jim Chung. Jim Chung, prior to after CrossGen, is is he 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 leveled up tremendously. Well, there was obviously a you know there was obviously a good eye for talent, mm-hmm. um, and part of, you know credit part of that to various people on staff, but the, the initial. The initial talent um, artistically was sort of scoped out by um, Brandon Peterson, who was the first art director. Ah. So he's the one that you know he's the one that um, looked at Jim Chung stuff and said, "Yeah, this is the guy we should hire." Uh, looked at um, Josh Middleton stuff, who was really mm. working on his first comics ever. Yeah. Um, and said, "We we need this guy." Um, so. There was a. I, I don't know that there's ever been a better collection of art talent in one place at one time than CrossGen, and I'll you know, I'll believe that until they put me in the ground. Um, we had we had too. an amazing artistic crew, um, you know, Butch Guy, Steve Epting, uh, Greg Land, Jim Chung, Brandon Peterson, Bart Sears, um, Mike Perkins. If you know, I, I mentioning anybody means I leave out a bunch that right. were, that were just as um, and there was a natural competition to having that many great artists in the same studio because, um, you know, if if you're working in comics, you love comics. There's, you know, nobody's nobody's working in comics because, you know, uh, you know, because all because of the fame and the groupies. That's <laughs> you know, that's not a thing that that's not a thing that happens. Uh, and, you know, and if you if you're if you're an artist and you just want to draw you can go work in video games or production design or something like that and make a lot more money and have a lot easier job than, than drawing sequential pages every day. Um, so, you know, if you're in comics, it's because you love comics and everybody that was in the studio loved comics, um, and wanted to get better. So they, they all looked at each other's work. They all absorbed each other's influences. Um, nobody, nobody wanted to be the guy that at the end of the day, hung up the lousy page of the day because um, because everybody hung their work you know outside their their workstations oh that's crazy um, wow. and you know so everybody else could walk around and see what everybody else was doing mm-hmm. so there was a there was a natural healthy competition um especially among to um to show off to, to you know to to do the best job they could do and i think that was really reflected in in how the books looked yeah, um, we would definitely agree. Now, 
kind of bridging off of that, uh, getting to your current venture of an ominous press, I think it's kind of the same thing. And I guess my first question with that is, did that teach you how to be an, an editor? Like now you serve as the editor-in-chief of Ominous Press, right? Yeah. Um, it, uh, yeah, like I said, I learned a hell of a lot about actually putting comics together um, as uh, as a writer at CrossGen. I learned a lot about um, working with our teams and, you know, you know I, I, I obviously I, I had been working in the business for 10 years at that point already, but it's, it's different when, um, when you're, when you're the writer and, you know, you're working with the art team, but the editor's coordinating everything. Right. Uh, that's a different situation from having no editor and basically you have to run the team, uh, and, and run the book yourself. Um, it was it was hugely instructive for me, particularly from a from a standpoint of working with artists and understanding, you know, what they do better because I sat there and watched it every day, um, rather than just having a you know having a cool page drop into your inbox every other day. Um, it was um, you know it was it was up close and personal at that point. I got to mm-hmm. see you know what guys did see see how guys worked see how you know see how you know greg land used photo reference to to work on his pages where jim chung would would always have you know a plethora of comics and art books mm-hmm. opened all over his workstation and would draw in blue pencil and then uh you know lay out lay out something trace it off onto the back of the page then turn the page over and trace it off onto the front oh, it, you wow. know everybody <laughs> Every yeah, I mean Jim, you know Jim ended up drawing this, drawing the page three or four times to get to a finished page. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, so um, it's uh, it was it, it was probably the most valuable experience of of my career in terms of of giving me a much broader base of knowledge mm-hmm. about how we do this from from all ends of the spectrum. So certainly. Uh, and then doing other editorials, I you know did editorial stuff for um, for Virgin Comics yep. for a number of different Indian publishers. Um, you know the, the I tried to learn from the editors that I worked for um, at DC and Marvel, mm-hmm. and the guys that that I worked for that I appreciated the most were the ones who helped you when you needed help and left you alone when you needed to be left alone. Um, that was, you know, that was the most valuable lesson for me. Um, you know, I think Archie Goodwin's the best editor to have ever graced comics. Uh, yeah. God rest his soul. Um, you know, Archie told me one day, he said, look, you know, if I, if I hire the right people to do the right project, I don't really have to do anything beyond that. <laughs> like I can just let everybody, I can let everybody do their work and just supervise them as it comes in. And he, this was up, this was at DC. This was in Archie's office at DC at the time. And he pointed behind himself and he had a bunch of, you know, he had a bunch of books on his bookshelf, you know, like actual books with no pictures in them. Uh, and he said, he said, I, you know, I got a lot of books to read. And if, if I just hire you guys to, to <laughs> do what you do and I can leave you alone, I can read my books. <laughs> So to me, that was, um, you know, 
that was a huge lesson in in an editor. A confident editor is the one who will leave you alone and let you do your job. Yeah. Uh, an editor who's who's twitchy about things or is a frustrated creator, him or herself, and wants to work the story that they want to tell through you is a different kind of editor. Um, and, you know, it, it doesn't make them a bad editor. It just means, you know, can you can you work in that scenario as well? Um, exactly. Adapt. So I try to, you know, w when I edit stuff, I try to make sure that the right people have been hired to do the job and then just, you know, nudge them along as they're doing it. Um, you know, part of my part of my night here will be to check in with with artists who are working on other projects for Ominous and just, you know, how's it going? We got some more pages. What do you think? We, you know, we're, we're starting to run a little late. How can, how can we get caught up? It's, it's a, um, you, you know, ruling with an iron fist is not anything that, um, it's anything that, that ultimately leads to, to great comic books. Never, never. Yeah. Um, so how did you guys, uh, formulate the team for Ominous Press because it's, it's a very, very solid team. Well, Ominous Press existed in the 90s. Um, it was the publishing company that Bart Sears founded um, in the mid-90s um, because comics were booming in the mid-90s. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, it, it survived for a year and a half, maybe two years or something like that. And then when the bottom dropped out of the market, um, leading to things like Marvel versus DC to help uh, help prop up the market, um, Ominous Press and a lot of other small publishers, um, you know, just just went away because there was there were there were no longer there was no longer enough money in the industry as a whole to keep small publishers going. Um, so. You know, so I didn't actually do any work for Ominous in in the uh, in the 90s. Uh, I was supposed to do some work, but things shuttered before um, before we ever got there. So, um, you know, flash forward 20 years, and Bart Sears and I and Andy Smith are at um, Baltimore Comic Con uh, together. And obviously, Bart and Andy and I had all worked on staff at CrossGen as well. Yeah. Um, so we were, you know, we were at, um, we're at, and I think that was the first show that Bart had done in, you know, quite a while. Maybe he's, you know, he did, he'd done one other, one other show in 10 years or something like that. But he'd gone off to, you know, work for other publishers and also do video games and stuff like that. Um, so, um one of the guys who also worked at Ominous back in the 90s is a guy named Sean Husbar, we were all friends with. Uh, when when Ominous went away in the 90s, Sean often founded other businesses in real, um, you know, in not in comics, in, in, real, uh, in real business world, uh, <laughs> telecom businesses and internet businesses and stuff like that. Became very successful. So... Um, Sean hopped a plane from Buffalo and came down and hung out with us that, uh, I believe it was the Sunday of, of the, the show. And, um, that was the first time that we had all been together in 20 years, I think, like in the same room in the same spot. Um, and we got talking about, Hey, it'd be cool to do a comic together again, wouldn't it? And 
let's do a comic together again grew into, well, maybe we should start ominous again and maybe we should do stuff beyond the ominous universe and do other projects. And so it's, it's kind of grown exponentially in the, in the, I guess, what is it? Three years since, since we all were together. Um, so now that it's a, you know, it's a, it's a real publishing concern with a bunch of projects coming out and the ominous universe stuff publishing IDW and, um, a number of different irons in the fire so that Mm -hmm. we're, um, so that we're we want to do you know we want to do a whole a whole range of of projects um not just personal stuff but bringing in other creators we we like um and there will be uh, maybe within a couple months there will be more announcements about ominous and its sister company sleeping giant which is a you know collectibles uh, company uh that that Sean also owns uh, so we have, we have things. There are things happening, um, and uh, we'll be doing we'll be doing more things. I guess I, I, <laughs> I have to I have to leave it cryptically cryptically like that. But um, it's uh, you know it's a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah, and it definitely shows in the work too, because uh, I've read the first two issues of uh, of Dread Gods, and like it's an amazing book because I like how. It's part Game of, Game of Thrones, part Gladiator, part sci-fi epic. Because I still don't know which storyline is, is is the uh, is the real one. I mean, I, obviously, is that they're in those vats. But yeah, but that was a, a, a plot which I didn't really see coming. Well, good. I'm glad you didn't see it coming. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's all of the all of the Ominous Universe books have a little bit different flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, Dread Gods is that it's sort of science fiction post-apocalypse. It's fantasy with you know Greek god type characters. Mm-hmm. Um, Demigod is more sort of near science fiction um, superhero story, but with um, kind of a, to a certain extent tongue planted firmly in cheek. Right, right, right. Um, and so hopefully the stuff all has a all has a bit of a different. Um, personality to it and then as we as we expand to other projects um there's going to be stuff that has you know that has nothing to do with the ominous universe they're just they're just stories you want to tell like harkins raiders like uh beast Beast of the black hand that i did with paul harding and matt smith um it's uh you know it's a chance to it's a chance for creators to tell the kind of stories that they're really passionate about yeah, and like definitely show because uh, because Tom Rainey has never looked better to me. Like his art is like he's definitely at an apex right now on work on all Dread Gods. It's really well, good stuff. Tom's just killing it. Um, I've known Tom for more than twenty years. I think mm. um, we did it. We did a Silver Surfer issue together years ago, and I've always and I've always been friends. Worked together, worked together here and there when we could. Um, when we talked about. Dread Gods. When we talked about, okay, this is this is one of the books we want to do. Um, you know, a lot of this stuff comes down to creative casting. Do, you know, do you have the right creators, the right spots, and and frankly, um, having t- like I couldn't think of anybody else. Um, um, <clears throat> I couldn't think of anybody else that would be the right fit. Uh, yeah. Tom just seemed to be. Exactly the right guy 
um, when when we we put this book together, you know, he wasn't the he wasn't the top name on the list. He was the only name on the list. <laughs> yeah, and it showed because the energy of the pages is just like astounding. Well, I'm I'm looking at um, the issue four pages from mm-hmm. Dreadcuts as we as we speak, um, and I think they might be the best ones of the bunch so far. So that 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 issue's going off to press next week, and um, you know we'll we'll finish off that initial four issue storyline. Yeah, because uh, as of right now, like the main books are all like four issue miniseries, and, and they're going to be tied together tangentially, like kind of like Cross Gen was. Yeah, you know, certainly you don't need to read all the books. We would love for you to read all the books, but um, you don't have to. You know, I, I to a to a certain extent, I you know, yeah, there is sort of a cross gen model where there are, there are threads that tie the books together. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're not you're not going to be penalized if you're not reading all the books. You'll be rewarded if you are reading all the books, and you'll see where where some of these things. Um, uh, so where some of this stuff ties together, but you're not going to be, uh, you're not going to feel like, well, where the hell, where the hell am I? What is going on? Because um, I think that's, I don't think that's playing fair with the readers. Um, um, to to sort of force them to you know to buy a broad spectrum of books if they just want to read one or two. Uh, so so that's kind of how we're approaching this stuff and. And then most of the uh, the ominous presents stuff like Beast of the Black Hand and Harkins Raiders and the other stuff we're going to announce, that that's all standalone. That's all mm-hmm. you, you just you show up, you get your story, and you're you're good to go. Yeah, because uh, I'm trying to think how uh, how Demigod and Dread God, besides the fact they're God in both titles, <laughs> could have possibly um, converged. It seems like obviously because in Dread Guys is post apocalyptic. Post-apocalyptic, and uh, Demogas appears to be in modern times. I'm very interested to see how those. How those old... Oh no, I, I just saw it. Never mind, because I, I forgot. I read a Demigod first, and then Hermes was in there, and he's and he's one of the Dread Guys, correct? Yeah, there's 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 sort of um, subtle ties between um, between the books, and uh, you'll if you're reading them both, you'll you'll notice them. But they they very much do stand on their own. The, some of the books t- take place on different worlds. Um, some of them take place in different time periods. There there is an overall tapestry that they're all part of. Um, and if you stick with us for the whole you know for the whole integrated story, mm-hmm. that's awesome. Um, <laughs> we're 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 thrilled. But we're not going to um, we're, we're not going to you know we're not going to force you to. Um, uh, to get everything to have a to have an understandable story in front of you. If you're just reading one title, that title will definitely make sense in and of itself. Mm. Mm. Um. So, who is your favorite uh, non-creator-owned character to write? Like Kyle from Kyle Reiner to uh, Reiner to Silver Surfer. Who's your favorite? A uh, Witchblade, um, Darkness. That I've that I've written at length, or just or just overall. Overall. Um, you know, I I honestly loved writing Superman probably more than anything else. 
Um, I haven't, you know, I didn't do a long run on Superman or anything like that, but Superman to me is is the first comic book character, the original, the original superhero character, mm-hmm. um, and um, getting Superman right is is something I'm really proud of. I think I got him right, and yeah. particularly in a in the um, Adventures of Superman story that I did with Doc Shaner. Um, yeah. Yes. 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 That's, that's one that that you know that's always an issue that I if people say what's you know what are you most proud of that's that's one of them because I feel like um, Superman is is um, you know he's he's not he's not even a a comic book icon he's a he's a fictional icon he's yes. you know he he goes with yeah he goes on the same shelf with um, you know, sort of timeless things like like uh, Sherlock Holmes and the Three Musketeers and Tarzan. Mm-hmm. You know, these characters that that you can go to any part of the world and show someone the Superman symbol and they know what it is. Um, so I think you know, Superman's on the top of my list. Batman's pretty great too. Yeah. Um, Spider Man. The few times that I really got a chance to write him. Um, was always a delight as well. Um, so you know, to me, the icons are always are always the, the most attractive because I think finding finding room to work in a character that's been um, so fully explored is a really satisfying experience. Uh, yeah, I can see. Kind of getting back to like the uh, the main characters um, that you were just talking about, <clears throat> um, and I know you probably don't get to keep up up. Uh, keep up on as many books as you'd probably like to, but how's it feel to see kind of like that resurgence of Kyle Rayner in recent years, you know, getting back into Daryl's original costume design and kind of having him be get back into being like that fun character that you originated? Um, it's cool. You know, it's, I, you know, I can't, um, I can't, you know, I can't, you know, try to be the, you know, I can't try to be too cool for school and say, oh, you know, it's no big deal. It's, it's great. You know, it's great that, that a character that we created and, and got to, got to shape for, um, quite a few years. I mean, I stayed on the book seven years. Daryl stayed on another year and a half longer than I did. Yeah. Um, we really got to, to mold Kyle as we wanted to. So to have him, uh, to have the character, Come into you know, come into the DCU and stick around, um, be the lead in the book for ten years, um, and and make an impression on people. You know, to to have a a uh, a fan base that that I I think I hope um, still considers him their Green Lantern is great, and to see him still still you know vital in the DC universe and and back to the original costume mm-hmm. um, is really pretty cool. And I, you know, I, I appreciate every creator that came after us on the book um, that sort of kept, uh, kept him going. Yeah. Uh, I think I speak for Brian and I, when I say that Kyle Reiner is definitely our green lantern. Absolutely. He's the one, the first well, green lantern I, I knew of before a character and everything. Green lantern is always, you know, it's, it's one of those characters that, um, Kind of when you discover it is when uh, right. when 
you know, the, the character you discover is is your is your guy. Um, you know, for me, I didn't read The Flash to any great extent until I was actually working at DC and reading the Mark Wade run with Wally. So really? Wally really? West is Wally West is my Flash. Same uh, here. That's um, not that I don't appreciate the other characters a great deal, but just there's an affection for for Wally that that I didn't have for Barry because I never read that many Barry stories when I was a kid. Right. Um, and and the legacy aspect of DC's heroes, I think, allows the readership to plug into whichever character they want. And then even on top of that, because really anybody can be, be Green Lantern. You know, if you have a, if you have the ring, you can be Green Lantern. Um, you know, there's... There's one Superman. There's one Batman. There's one Spider-Man. To to great extent, it's um, uh, those characters are very unique and specific individuals. Green Lantern is more like, um, you know, it's more like, hey, you want to, you know, do you want to be Green Lantern this month? <laughs> uh, and I, I think there's a, you know, there's kind of a, uh, there's kind of a cool, um, there, there's a cool aspect to, to Green Lantern in that. You can kind of pick from a menu as to which one is which one is your favorite one. Yeah, but true. But you also though have to be able to overcome that fear. Without that, you can't be a Green Lantern. That's the one a criterion for it: overcoming great fear. And the nice thing is, Kyle Rayner wasn't even your only uh, Green Lantern creation. You uh, mm. you created uh, Jade as the, one of the Green Lanterns as well. That was uh, was that your idea? Oh, bringing Jade into the Green Lanterns. Yeah. Um, well, obviously Jade as a character existed before, um, but uh, you know J- Jade came into the book in sort of a, an odd way in that um, you know she was she was really a supporting a supporting character in the book, and Kyle's Kyle's romantic interest was Donna Troy because I was always a you know I was always a um, a Titans fan you know that was. That was the DC book I read as a kid. Was was um, was Titans. So Donna didn't really have a home in any other book at the moment. So we we kind of got to keep her for a while, as um, as Kyle's love interest. And then when John Byrne came in and took over Wonder Woman, he wanted her back. So and we got very little notice, so we couldn't really end the relationship in a plausible way. Um, she was just kind of gone. So the you know the the fallback became well I guess you know I guess we can maybe move Jade into that um, into that girlfriend role uh, and she obviously is a is a hero in her own right um, you know I, I, I like both relationships actually um, the the Jade one we got to sort of uh, we got to let it play out a little bit longer than the than the Donna Troy um, because. She was our character. Nobody else was going to take her out of our uh, editorial office, so we could kind of do what we wanted. Right. Is there? Uh, do you have any like unfinished Green Lantern storylines that you'd like to be able to still say tell someday, or do you feel like you've kind of said everything you've wanted to with the character? Um. There's not one off the top of my head that I sit here and say, oh, I have a burning desire to, to tell this story with Kyle. Um, I, I think, but on the other, you know, on the, on the other side of the coin, I, I think, 
I probably always will have stories to tell about Kyle. Um, there, you know, the, when the opportunity is right and the art team is right and things line up, I would certainly go back and you know and do some more uh, do some more Kyle stories. He's obviously a character that's that's very near and dear to me. Um, even though I don't own him, Daryl doesn't own him. There, he's you know he's totally DC's baby. But the the characters that you bring into this world are always a little nearer and dearer to you. Um, so sure, I would you know I, I would certainly find a way to um, to tell some more Green Lantern stories with Kyle. Um, and if I got if I got into it and just and figured out, well, I really don't have anything else to say, then you just you step away. Um, I'm just glad that the character has been. Um, you know, has been a useful piece for the DC universe for, you know, for 25 years now. Yeah, because that was one of my, I remember one of my biggest fears when they announced uh, Jeff coming on and doing Rebirth and bringing back Hal Jordan. I think it was a lot of people's like, you know, are, are they going to kill off Kyle? Or, I mean, because this is a character that so many people have grown to love and That's not respect. my Green Lantern. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I, I'm happy, <laughs> so happy that it was handled to the best that it could be, um, maybe had its ups and downs since then, but um, still a character that's relevant today. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's uh, like we like we said before that Green Lantern is one of those franchises where everybody gets to pick their own flavor, um, and I'm I'm just glad that there are still people who you know who would would pick Kyle as their flavor. Yeah. Um. So. As we close here, I want to ask you a quick question. Didn't you do some work uh, for on rather the Phantom? Uh, yeah, I did. I did one issue of the Phantom. I put together a uh, put together a Phantom annual for Moonstone a mm-hmm. um, number of years ago, uh, and and you know it, it was honestly one of those deals where I just you know I've I've always liked the Phantom a bunch. I've always mm-hmm. wanted to write. A phantom story, so um, so you know it's 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 a bucket list item. It's an itch you right. have to scratch. So <laughs> I pulled together a bunch of friends, and we all did we all did a, a bit uh, for the Phantom Annual. Uh, we did you know eight or ten pages a piece or whatever we did, um, and I got to you know I got to scratch my phantom itch, and and have been <laughs> wanting to scratch it again ever since. Uh, right. I uh, you know on my on my Still on my bucket list is a is a Phantom Tarzan project Ooh. that uh, yeah. that I would love to do. That would be amazing. And then I feel like the Phantom movie from ninety six or seven is one of my favorite superhero movies. Is is if you watch it for what it is, it's a great movie. It gets overlooked. Yeah, I, mean, I don't I don't know that I would put it on my list of you know movies that are good <laughs> there's, i love there's, it there's, there's there's definitely aspects where you go oh man i don't know if that's a great choice but <laughs> but you know but it's fun i love the fact that it's you know there was a period movie and that it it really um i think it captured um the essence of the phantom it's you know it's not a perfect movie by any means but um i'm glad it exists uh, just like just like the Shadow movie, really. Um, it's not the that Shadow bad. movie has some stuff. The Shadow movie has some stuff that doesn't work. It's got a lot of other stuff that really does work. So um, it's you know the Shadow is another character that 
look, that I, that was an itch I wanted to scratch. I went off and wrote a shadow one shot for Dynamite just because mm-hmm. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to do that character too. So that that's that's really been one of the blessings of my career is that I've I've gotten to do a lot of the characters that that I really you know had on that bucket list. Uh, there's not there's not a lot, a lot left on it in terms of. Uh, getting my hands on a character to do at least once, so right. um, I feel extremely blessed to have been been able to check off a lot of those boxes. Yeah, you definitely have. Um, so, are there any uh, work of is there rather is there any work of yours that doesn't get the attention that you believe that it should that you want to uh, tell tell the uh, fans about now? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it's it's always you know you, you, attention is always. Um, in the eye of the beholder, you, True. You, you do the you do the work, you do the best job you can, and it goes out into the world. And you hope people um, you hope people respond to it. Uh, right. I'm I'm thankful for everybody that that's read anything at any point. Um, you've you've made uh, you've made it possible for me to have a very nice life and to have a very creatively fulfilled life. Um, there's and there's always stuff that you feel like you know that that. You know, to a certain extent, it's like trying to pick one, pick which one of your kids you love the right. best. But um, I do think the creator-owned material tends to be um, tends to be stuff that you hold a little closer to yourself. Um, so I did a I did a historical adventure series uh, at Dark Horse about a decade ago called Samurai Heaven and Earth. Um, I remember that. Which is which is still about my favorite thing. Mm. I mean, there's a there's a lot on the list, but that's that's very near the top. Um, it was by Luke Ross and mm-hmm. me, and it's a um, it's a historical samurai adventure with a samurai who uh, follows his his kidnapped lover um, all the way across Europe, and in the first volume winds up in uh, the court of uh, the court of King Louis um, and meets the Three Musketeers. So. That's a you know that's a book that just wrote itself for me. Uh, Luke did an amazing job. Um, there's there's actually a um, there's a second volume that takes place in, in the Middle East and Egypt, and then there's actually a third volume that takes place in the Caribbean with pirates that we will get to someday. Um, Luke and I Luke and I are still buddies. We still talk all the time, and that's still something that we both want to. We, we both want to get out into the world before um, uh, before they uh, take us away to the old cartoonist home. <laughs> I mean, but being that you are the editor in chief of a of a comic book company is is a better possibility, I would think. It's it's not out of the question. It's <laughs> it's not it's it's not out of the question that that's been discussed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hopefully it comes out because uh, I think. Because back when that book came out, I didn't have the access to go to comic book stores often then because I was a teenager, a young teenager. But yeah, but I had the first issue of that, and it was a very good story that I actually forgot about until you just brought it up. So I've got to go back and finish that up. Oh, thanks, man. I, you know, it's it's um, it's really one of my one of my favorite things ever. Um, mm. It's uh, when you do a creator own book um, to great extent. It turns out like you want it to. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, you, if you're working with the right people, um, every page is ultimately exactly what you want it to be. I, I, I did a book called Shinku at Image um, with Lee Motor. It's 
it's you know every page is exactly what everybody on the creative team wanted it to be. Um, there's there's huge there, you you don't have to compromise when you're working with your own characters. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't have to um, you know you don't have to um, compromise your vision or what you want to do because they're your toys. When you play with somebody else's toys, um, just like when you're you know at the playground as a kid, everybody has to. Everybody has to play nice. Right. When it's just your toys, you can do whatever you want with them. If you want to break them, you can do that. Beautiful. Um, so, besides those products that haven't got as much attention that you uh, as you would hope, um, what else should we be expecting from? Well, I guess you said it. So you got the uh, Omnibus Press books. You've got the Aspen books. Uh, what else should people be looking out for you? What else of your work should people be looking out for you on the shelves right now? Well, there's um, there's more coming. There's more to be announced, but uh, I can't announce them yet. The publishers publishers frown on um, you letting the cat out of the bag too quickly. Right. But uh, <laughs> they'll uh, there'll be there should be some more stuff announced uh, uh, at uh, New York Comic Con. So um, yeah. I guess pay pay attention to the to the interwebs uh, <laughs> around New York. There's more coming. And then, um, is Fathom on the third issue now? I'm sorry? Is Fathom on the third issue? Uh, second issue just came out okay. uh, yesterday. Uh, third issue, forthcoming. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, and then, um, this is, I guess, uh, some housekeeping. Is it better for you if this comes out when you launch the Kickstarter, or I was going to put it out probably next Tuesday or Wednesday? Um... Uh, whatever, whatever works for you guys. Okay. Um, if uh, if you if you've got a slot next Tuesday or Wednesday, we can just tell people Kickstarter coming. Um, the Kickstarter we we decided to move it. Um, pr was going to be yesterday or two days ago. So we're probably going to bump it forward two weeks. Mm -hmm. um, so whatever whatever works for you guys. Okay. Um, that's all I really have. Uh, definitely, I hope. Uh, Hope everything goes great with the uh, Kickstarter. And, uh, definitely, if you want, uh, hit us up on Twitter, and we can uh, remember to shout out for you guys when that starts up. And uh, definitely get that uh, out in print. Awesome, guys! Thanks so much. Thank <laughs> you.